Well, good morning, everyone. Church family, welcome back. It's good to be worshiping King Jesus with you. And I know there's lots of visitors here with us this morning for these child dedications. We're growing our church the OG way. Good job, parents. Let's keep seeing this place grow. Uh, If you are visiting with us this morning, my name is Chad. And my title here is Pastor in Training, or PIT, or PIT. And I was with some saints on Friday night, and uh, my sister in Christ said, Chad, (laughs) has anyone ever called you the notorious PIT? And I almost fell off the couch laughing, and I said, no, but please, can we start a movement for you guys to start calling me the notorious PIT? If you don't know the reference, I can tell you after church. Um, Welcome to our family integrated service as well. Um, Church family, you know we do this. Whenever there's a fifth Sunday, we cancel most of the Sunday school, except for the little kids and the toddlers, and and kids are going to be in here with us. Uh, We think this is a great opportunity to disciple the kids like we just covenanted to do, to teach them what it means to follow Jesus and teach them the gospel. And my hope, and I'm sure everyone's hope in here, is that these kids will learn to love being in big church, adult church, hearing um, us sing and singing with us and praising God and hearing the Bible preached and seeking to glorify God through their lives. So I'm glad the kids are in here. Uh, We're continuing our our series through Luke. We've called this series the Gospel of Luke, the Upside-Down Kingdom. And as you heard, just read, we're in chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Before we dive into God's Word, join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for another day. Lord, you're good, you're great, you're greatly to be praised. I just want to pray again for... All these children who are dedicated this morning, Lord, we thank you for the gift of children and pray that you would use these parents and their friends and grandparents and this church family to help them learn who you are and what you've done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray for us now, Lord, as we continue to worship through hearing your word and as I preach it, I pray that each of us would worship through this sermon, that we would look freshly at you and what you've done for us in Jesus, and that we would respond accordingly. Uh, We love you, Lord, and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a saying in sports, and especially in coaching, and I've been a coach on and off throughout my life, that says this, an athlete doesn't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I've experienced coaches that didn't seem to care too much. I've also experienced ones that really did. And the ones that I knew cared a lot, uh, they were a joy to, to learn from and to be under their authority. And this saying is probably not just true in the sports world, but anywhere. I wonder how many of you have had great and caring bosses Bad bosses who didn't care, great teachers who cared a lot, and bad teachers who didn't seem like they cared at all. If you're like me, you may have still obeyed your uncaring coaches and teachers and bosses, but on the inside, you didn't like it. It was hard. And when it comes to the good coaches and teachers and bosses, those who you knew really cared about you, those that really showed compassion for you, it's a joy to be under their authority. 
And you probably look back at those teachers, coaches, and bosses with deep gratitude, don't you? Luke, our passage this morning, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, show us why Jesus is worthy to be obeyed. Because he has authority and compassion. Or could I say his authority is clothed in compassion. We care how much he knows and says because we know how much he cares. He's not to be obeyed as a heavy-handed dictator, but as the caring God that he is. These last few weeks, if you've been with us, I know most of you have, we've been going through what's called the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus' Sermon. And Jesus taught what the upside-down kingdom looks like, not only for someday in heaven, but for the here and now, for those who are in the kingdom already through faith in Jesus Christ. And last week, we looked at the end of Jesus' sermon. He ended his sermon by saying that if people obey him, they are like a person who has built their house on the rock. And for those who don't obey Jesus, they are like a person who has built their house on the sand. And remember, way back to Luke chapter 1, the first few verses, Luke is writing to a guy named Theophilus. But he's also writing for us, for the church. The Holy Spirit had inspired him to write this letter. And it's for the church of all times. And so he's, Luke said he was writing so that Theophilus and we may have certainty about who Jesus is about the things that we've been taught about Jesus. And after a bold statement from Jesus that people should obey him, which is chapter 6, verses 46 through 49, it seems like Luke wants to continue to show that Jesus should be obeyed because of who he is. So throughout chapter 7, we're going to see more confirmation about who Jesus is, and we're going to see some reactions to Jesus. This morning, we're going to see a centurion and a crowd and a widow who sees this man raised from the dead. Next week, we're going to see John the Baptist's reaction to Jesus and his struggle with doubt. The week after that, we're going to see a sinful woman and a Pharisee. And some of these reactions that people have to Jesus are commended to us by Luke, and some aren't. So for the text this morning, we're going to see that verses 1 through 17 are broken into two paragraphs. And rightly so, for their two scenes. So that's going to be the structure that I walk through the sermon this morning. Two scenes. Number one, the faith that amazes Jesus. And number two, the compassion that moves Jesus. What this text shows us is that Jesus is worthy to be obeyed. Again, that comes from the context from last week. Because his authority is clothed in compassion. So first, let's look at this first scene, the faith that amazes Jesus, verses 1 through 10. The first thing we see in this scene is that Jesus has finished his sermon, and he's now in Capernaum. Capernaum was Jesus' adopted hometown. He was a transplant after he'd been kicked out of the town that he grew up in, Nazareth. If you guys remember a few months ago when Dan preached, he he gave us this powerful reminder that actually after Jesus got kicked out of Nazareth, his hometown, he never went back. So Capernaum became his hometown. He based his ministry there. He did many miracles there. He chose some of his disciples while there. And interestingly, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus curses Capernaum for its general lack of faith, despite all the miracles he did there. Then we see in the scene that enters this significant character, a centurion. A centurion was an officer in the Roman army who commanded 100 men. 
Verse 2 says this, Now a centurion had a servant who was sick, and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. So this centurion servant was on a deathbed of sickness and highly valued by this centurion. Maybe this gives us some insight that this centurion wasn't your average Roman officer. He cared for his servant. Now, maybe we'd argue, well, he cared for him because he was really productive in his work, but maybe he cared for him more than just that. And this centurion hears about Jesus. And what had he heard? We aren't told explicitly, but as we continue to read, it seems that he knows that Jesus can do miracles and that he, the centurion, feels unworthy to come to Jesus himself or even to have Jesus come to him. So this centurion sends to Jesus elders of the Jews, asking Jesus to come and heal his servant. In verses 4 and 5, we read, And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So the fact that this centurion was close enough with some of the elders of the Jews in Capernaum to send them to Jesus and their commendation of, to him, to Jesus, of him, to Jesus, shows what a unique character this centurion was. Close enough with some of the most influential men in the city to ask them this favor and well-liked enough by them to tell Jesus that he is worthy. The centurion is worthy to have Jesus do this for him. And the reason is given in the verses I just read, that the centurion loved the Jews, and he had built them their synagogue. As I read commentaries this week, I found that there's lots of speculation about the status of this centurion. I should say the spiritual status of this centurion. Was he a proselyte? That means was he a convert to Judaism? Was he a worshiper of Yahweh? Or was he just a really kind man who had built friendships with the Jews that he lived around and therefore open to this God of Israel? There are times when I think speculation is helpful and times when it's not. There may be passages of scripture that aren't quite crystal clear, but we can speculate what they mean or we can speculate someone's disposition based on other more clear passages of scripture. And there are other passages of scripture where speculation isn't helpful because there are no other passages that might help us interpret it. So I don't think speculation is that helpful here. Let's stick to what the text says about the centurion. The Jews thought he was worthy to receive help from Jesus. He loved their nation. He had built them their synagogue. And he had heard about Jesus and presumably knew that he was a miracle worker at least. So Jesus starts to go with this delegation of Jews to heal the centurion's servant. And the beginning of verse 6 says, And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends. So he sends a second delegation. So as Jesus is, is getting close to the house, these friends come up, and these friends speak to Jesus on behalf of the centurion. And what the centurion says blows Jesus' mind. It amazes him. He marvels. I've always read over this story. And one time I was sitting with my dad, and he said, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, that Jesus Christ was amazed. So he says in the second half of verse 6, it says, Lord, 
do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled. The words that this Gentile Roman centurion made the eternal, all-powerful, second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, marvel. This response, this understanding of Jesus' authority is commended to us by Luke. That's a point he is trying to make. So let's consider the things the centurion said. First, he says, he is not worthy to have Jesus come under his roof. But the Jewish delegation just told Jesus he is worthy. So which is it? Well, maybe this is an upside-down kingdom principle. To be worthy of the king and the kingdom, one must acknowledge they aren't worthy. Like so many other upside-down principles in the kingdom, to be weak, we must be strong. To see, we must acknowledge that we're blind. To be found, we must acknowledge that we're lost. So many other examples. No human being is worthy of the grace of God. That's why it's called grace. We don't earn it. We can't earn it. If we could earn it, it would be called a wage, a deserved gift. God is holy, holy, holy. And we are sinful, sinful, sinful. And yet the message of the Bible and the gospel tells us that we're worse than we could ever imagine and more loved than we could ever comprehend. And because of what Christ has done for us, because of what Christ has done for us, we become worthy of the king in the kingdom. Not because of anything in us, but because of what he's done for us. And this acknowledgement comes from deep humility. Whether or not this centurion knew that Jesus was the Messiah, he knew he wasn't worthy of being in the presence of Jesus Christ. How much more Christians can we recognize that, who know who Jesus really is? And how amazing the gospel message really is that he, he wants to be with us and is with us and will share his glory with us because of what he did for us. And yet we can say, along with John the Baptist, I am unworthy even to stoop down and untie your sandal. The centurion then describes his understanding of Jesus' authority based on his own, his own life. His own life is an illustration. Since the centurion commands 100 men, he can say a command, and it goes through the ranks and gets accomplished. He's a man with vested authority from Caesar himself, so his men will obey him. And he knows the same and more is true of Jesus Christ. He knows that Jesus is a man with vested authority from God, and that all Jesus has to do is say the word, and his servant would be healed from afar. Verse 9 says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, 
Not even in Israel have I found such faith. He is amazed. He marvels. I know I already said that, but it's amazing. There are only two times, you guys, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only two times that speak of Jesus being amazed or marveling. This is one, and the other is in Mark's Gospel when Jesus marvels at people's unbelief. Mark 6, 6, if you want to go read that later today. Jesus says he hasn't even seen this kind of faith in Israel. You know, the people of God, Israel means he strives with God, the people who have stroven, if that's a word, with God since the beginning. The, the monotheistic worshipers of Yahweh who had grown up on stories of God's mighty hand and his outstretched arm, especially as they celebrated yearly the Passover, where they would retell the story of the ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, the destruction of Pharaoh's army, and this Gentile Roman centurion exercises greater faith, Jesus says, than anyone in Israel. That's amazing. This is a reminder and a foreshadowing of Gentile inclusion in the people of God's kingdom. If you don't know what Gentile means, it just means not Jewish. So if you're in here and you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. Praise God I get to be a part of his kingdom. God is not just the God of the Jews. He's the God of the Gentiles, and that's been his purpose from the beginning. But now we see King Jesus inaugurating this new kingdom of people from all tribes and tongues and nations. And almost, in a side note, it's not a side note, I said almost, in a side note, Jesus does heal the servant from afar. Verse 10, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So I'll make a few applications for us and then we'll look at the next scene. The centurion had a humble, dependent faith. And yes, his faith amazed Jesus. But the text doesn't say, if you want to have saving faith, your faith must be huge and strong and deep and full of understanding. In fact, next week, we're going to look at a story with John the Baptist, his cousin, doubting Jesus. So don't read this story of the centurion and think, that the strength of your faith is what saves you, Christian. There are times where our faith is small, that we feel like we're barely hanging on by a thread, and we can say like the man in Mark 9, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's not about the size of your faith, it's about the size of your God. Small, humble, dependent faith in a big and a gracious and a saving God is still saving faith. Next, I'll remind you that Jesus still has the same authority. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's ruling and reigning, <clears throat> and he's still able to heal. We can fall off the horse on either side when it comes to God's healing authority. We can believe wrongly that it is always God's will to heal his people, and that if, he, if God doesn't heal, it's because our faith is too weak. That's called prosperity theology. It's horrible, and there are a lot of teachers who teach that in our country. 
Or we, on the other side, we can misunderstand God's sovereignty in a way that we never pray for healing. Just, I'm never going to pray for healing, God, because you've, you've set it all up. You know what's going to happen. I'm not going to even ask you about it. There is a middle way. There's a way to stay on the horse. We can and should pray that God would heal us or our friends or our relatives or our neighbors. He's still all powerful and has all authority. And at the same time, we can trust and we can even vocalize it in our prayers that if it's not his will, he will continue to give us the grace we need to make it through the day. He may not heal us. We know that. He might not heal us. But we can rest in his authority because we know if for some reason he isn't, there's a reason for that. Friends, he's doing things in our heart, causing us to become more like Christ and to cling to him and to let go of the things of the world. Finally, final quick application from this scene. Our, our obedience to Jesus is rooted in our own humble, dependent faith. Even if it's small. Faith that, that Jesus is worthy to be obeyed because he has all authority. It shouldn't flow from from heartlessness, indifference, uh, a frustrated understanding that he's a dictator or that mean policeman in the sky who doesn't want us to have any fun. None of those things is true. He doesn't want our obedience to come in that way. And if you were with us, I can't remember, in the last year we preached through the book of Malachi and that seemed to be one of the main points, didn't it? If you're just obeying me with your lips and not your heart, it's not honoring me. Remember my compassion and how much I love you and let that worship flow into obedience. He is compassionate. God's rules for mankind flow from a loving heart and a desire for us to experience as much flourishing as possible as we can in a sinful world. So let's look at, second, the compassion that moves Jesus, verses 11 through 17. In this next scene, we read that Jesus is in a different town, a town called Nain, just a little bit southwest of Capernaum. And Jesus' disciples and a great crowd are with him. We see that in verse 11. And as he's getting near to the gate, maybe he hasn't even gotten into the city. Maybe he's about to enter, and there's a dead man being carried out. One author says, the way of life meets the way of death. Funerals in this day would proceed out of the city to bury the dead person in a family cemetery. And this would take place at the end of the day on the day the person died. They didn't want the body decomposing there for any amount of time. They were going to bring it out and bury it that day. And we learn that this dead man is outlived by his mother. And she has also outlived her husband. She's a widow. And this is really important. In this time, being without husband or son... In this case, we read it's an adult son because he's referred to as a man. It would leave this woman in a desperate situation. And the people of this town knew that. And it seems this was a well-loved and respected family because we see in verse 12 that a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And verse 13 says, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Jesus is moved with compassion for this woman. He tells her, do not weep. But how did you read the tone of Jesus when he said that? 
do not weep. Show some backbone. Trust in me. Or did he say it like this? Do not weep. How you read Jesus' tone here and many other places says a lot about what you think about Jesus' character and how gospel-centered you really are. I think, and I hope you do too, that his tone was loving, gentle, and compassionate. And we have to remember that we've read this story, even if the first time you've ever heard this story was when Rachel read it for us at the beginning. We know what Jesus is about to do, but this woman didn't. Moms, I could say moms and dads, but the scene is of a mother, so moms, could you imagine? I'm sorry to do this to you, but could you imagine? If your child died and someone came up to you and said, don't cry. You're, you're heading out to bury your child. And someone says, don't cry. You, you might want to backhand him. You might want to scream at him. Are you kidding? I'm going to bury my kid. I'm going to cry. I'm not saying Jesus was wrong to say this. He knew what he was about to do. But the woman didn't. But she's about to experience the authority of Jesus even over death expressed through his compassion. Jesus wasn't saying to this woman nor to us as his followers that we aren't allowed to mourn. The famous story of him raising someone else from the dead, Lazarus, he weeps bitterly with Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. He, He said this to this woman to comfort her to insinuate, even if she didn't know it, that he was about to move in compassion towards her suffering and to make her suffering come untrue, which he will do someday for us, maybe in this life, guaranteed in the next. All of our suffering will come untrue because of his compassion. So he touches the beer, B-I-E-R, not B-E-E-R, Maybe if it was still a saying back then, he would have said, hold my beer, watch what I'm about to do, but that's not the context. He touches the beer, which is an open coffin or a plank where a shrouded and anointed corpse lay. Open casket. And again, we see Jesus' power over uncleanness. Jesus touching the beer would have made any Jew ritually unclean, but not Jesus, because he's not merely a Jew, he's God. So he touches the beer, he makes the bearer stop, and he shows his authority goes beyond the ability to heal sick people, but that he can even raise people from the dead. He has authority over death. And how does he do it? He speaks. Second half of verse 14, young man, I say to you, arise. And the Jews who are familiar with their Bibles would have recognized that there were a couple Old Testament prophets that raised people from the dead. Elijah and Elisha. Elijah, to raise a dead boy, had to to stretch himself three times over the boy. Elisha had to touch a child with his staff and then later lay over them, him. And these men were known as powerful prophets of God. So Jesus... Raising a man simply by speaking, this man must be from God. 
Where am I? So the man sits up, begins to speak, and Jesus gives the gift of a son back to a mother. And what a gift. What compassion. It's a reminder of the heart of our heavenly father, who has also given us the gift of a son. Another reminder that Jesus comes for the lowest, the least, and the left out. His compassion moves him to minister and to include all kinds of people in his kingdom. And what is the response? Let's look at verses 16 and 17. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So the people respond in fear. What kind of fear? My wife says, probably fear, fear. It's like, oh my gosh, that dead man just sat up. But also probably some of that godly, biblical, reverential fear. Respect of a man with such power and authority and compassion. And so they give God glory and they declare that Jesus must be a prophet because they've read the stories of Elijah and Elisha and they know only prophets of God can raise people from the dead. And that in Jesus, God has visited his people. We read that in Matthew, his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And that's exactly what happened when Christ came. God visited his people. God didn't only send Christ to us, but he sent him for us in compassion. And we, like the people who saw him raise the man from the dead, can't help but spread this news about him because of what he's done in our lives. I'm tempted to stand here for another 30 minutes and testify to all of you what God has done in my life. We don't have time, and the kids are in here, so I don't want to preach too long. But I know there are many of you in here that can testify for a lot of time about all the things that the triune God of the universe has done for you. Uh, Us living missionally isn't this, I should do it, I have to do it. I was actually just telling the middle schoolers this on Wednesday night. Because what he's done for me like, I want to share that. I want to spread it around. I want to be bold. I want to risk friendships. I told the middle schoolers, if you found the cure for cancer, wouldn't you want to go around telling the world, look, we found it, just take this pill. And yet we have something greater than the cure for cancer. We want to spread the news about Jesus Christ, not because it's a rule or a law, but because of what he's done for us. So what, is, what do these two scenes mean for us today? There's probably a lot. I hope the Lord is impressing upon your heart what it means for you. But I have a few things to offer. And I actually would first like to address those of you in here this morning that aren't Christians. Glad you're here. This is a church for you. You can ask questions. I want to say a sentence that I wish I made up. I didn't. It's from one of my favorite preachers that has impacted me mightily. I think I have it in memory. This book is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. 
that reports supernatural events, takes place to fulfill the most specific prophecies, and claims to be divine rather than human in origin. Everyone should memorize that sentence, especially you young people in here. When someone asks you, why do you believe the Bible? That's a way better sentence than just saying, well, because mom and dad taught me. Mom and dad's good. Keep teaching them that. But again, this is a reliable collection of historical documents. All that to say, if you're not a Christian in here, what we read this morning actually happened. Jesus Christ actually healed a centurion servant from afar by speaking a word. He actually raised a man from the dead by speaking a word. Jesus Christ actually died on a cross and actually rose again. And belief in him for the forgiveness of your sins will actually save you. He has the authority to forgive your sins. So often we read in the Gospels, that's why he's doing these mighty works to prove that he is sent from God and he can say, I can forgive your sins. And he has the compassion to die for your sins. For those of you who follow Jesus, who have repented and believed in him, who call him Lord and Savior, your obedience to God can flow from your faith in his authority and gratitude for his compassion. The Holy Spirit will work that up in you. Like the centurion, our faith causes us to believe that we don't need Jesus here physically and visibly to experience his authority over everything. That's a cool lesson for us. The centurion didn't think, yeah, you have to be here physically, visibly to to work your authority. Same for us. Although I would say we do long for the day when we're with him physically and visibly. I hope you do. I pray every day, come Lord Jesus. Just come take us home. And like the widow, we do well to remember Jesus' compassion. He's near to the brokenhearted. He will meet the needs of those in distress. Whatever you're going through right now or going to go through someday, you can rest in his authority knowing that his compassion has moved him to be with you through everything. And because he has all authority, even if he hasn't healed you or fixed your situation, it's because God has great purpose in your suffering. As we take these scenes together, we see a better picture of Jesus than if we didn't take these scenes together. Yes, he has all authority, and the centurion recognized that and showed great faith. But I ask this question. Did the centurion miss out on having dinner with the Son of God? Because he didn't totally understand his compassion. His authority was clothed in compassion. I mean, Jesus was on his way to his house. He could have had an intimate moment with the Son of God. The centurion recognized his authority. The widow experienced his compassion. And I'm not saying there was no compassion in the first scene and no authority in the second scene. Of course there was. But brothers and sisters, building your house on the rock, as we were reminded at the end of his sermon last week, starts with recognizing Jesus' authority and reveling in his compassion. The theological words we use for that is he's transcendent, he's above, he's beyond, he's holy, 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 and yet he's imminent. 
That stirs worship in my heart, and I hope it does yours. We see in Jesus a great prophet, as these people saw, but he's more than that. And in the next passage, next week, I hope you're all coming back, we're going to see him affirm to his cousin, John the Baptist, that he is the Messiah sent from God. So this week, I pray, friends, brothers, and sisters, that you would, you would rest in his authority, knowing that he's with you and his compassion is near you, no matter what you're going through. Let's pray. Father, we, we submit to your lordship and the lordship of Jesus Christ this morning. We acknowledge you have authority over everything and you are in control and sovereign over everything. And yet your control and authority is not as a heavy-handed dictator, but as a loving father with deep compassion. And we affirm that we see that in the Lord Jesus Christ who is a perfect reflection of you and, and we praise you for it. I pray that for those of us in here who are your people that we would we'd rest, we would, ha- we would have humble and dependent faith on you this week, that you're in control and that you're with us even if the circumstance and situation that we're in is difficult. And Lord, for those in here who, who aren't yet yours, I pray that they would consider the things I've said, the truthfulness of the Bible and the reality that Jesus Christ is who he said he was and did the things that the Bible says he did. We love you, Lord, and pray it in the name of King Jesus. Amen.